this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy with I Change Justice podcast. I'm here today with Alex McLean. He's a friend of mine from Whatcom County who's been very active in politics a bit, but with this very specific focus, environmental uh, justice, social change issues, greenways issues, economics, you name it. The man's a builder and he's got some opinions. So I'd like to welcome him to the call. Come on, Alex, and share with us why you're willing to join us on a call about the business of justice. Hey, Joy. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a kind of mixed bag of interest over my uh, career as a political agitator here in <laughs> Washington State. Um, I do hop around a lot, and I think that's a, a product of my education in journalism. Mm. Uh went to Western and I studied environmental journalism up there. And the course load was actually heavier on journalism than some of the actual journalism degrees. It was really intensive. And uh, so it forced me to interview and engage with uh, local politicians and talk to people like public works or natural resources, uh, department of, natural resources at the state level, things like that. And uh, because I did stick around, I, I moved here, uh, let's see, I guess 98. Oh, wow. my God, I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> where did you come from? I mean, like, where, what, what part of the world were you in, living in before? Uh, I was born on the East Coast. We lived in Haiti, of all places, for a brief while, and lived in Florida, and then came out here when I was about four and kind of hopped around in the uh, Seattle metro area in the suburbs and the city itself. And yeah, then I moved up here. I uh, went to school and, and just really loved Whatcom County and was a ski bum and uh, stuck around. And like I said, I, I think I, got some traction and interest in uh, local politics uh, through that journalism work and uh, through writing. Uh, I was published in a lot of the local, you know, Bellingham used to have just a really robust local publication ecosystem. There were a ton of, of weeklies and, and free rags out there. And I, I tried to write for them all. And it um, had pretty well crashed. I mean, I've watched that and I've been observing it. And, you know, it's amazing how many people don't notice it. But the fact that all the papers and the the social, the local social media platform, the, the citizen journalism platform has pretty well 
imploded over the last couple of years. Yeah. Welcome so to the tech revolution. Now, now we have to do everything in 90 word sound bites and, and have a catchy photo with Barbie in order to get anyone's attention. Well, but you're making then, even when you're in the social media platform, you're still not getting the attention. So we really have lost a lot in social journalism and conversation. So feel free to expound a little bit more about that as you talk about the environmental issues and this other things, because that's an interesting mix to have a environmental journalist. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, it was an interesting degree. Uh, what I realized pretty quickly, uh, because I was getting term papers published, uh, I realized that the type of writing I was interested in uh, would keep me eating top ramen for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> was it investigative type environmental journal or was it technical writing or was it social opinion? Uh, I did uh, several pieces that were uh, pretty deep dive, multi-series investigative journalism type things. But I, uh, because I was writing for, um, you know, independent weeklies, so I had some liberties to uh, do some uh, editorializing as well. So I, I kind of developed a, a voice. A lot of people say it's pretty caustic. <laughs> yeah, Maybe you can be. A little aggressive. I don't know. But why, why not? I mean, I'm writing for free. Uh, well, and I, it's provocative. You know, sometimes your questions cause the audience to have to sit up and listen. And we actually look at it and go, wow, did he really say that? And what did, what did he mean by that? I mean, you've, you've actually fascinated me with your courage in, in writing. And now that I understand that you studied journalism, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I, I do feel like I'm really careful. I, I don't want to slander people or, you know, try and get people fired or uh, ruin their lives or careers or anything. But if there's an issue out there and it's just flagrantly upside down, like if, if there's just no sense making involved with a political or bureaucratic choice to, you know, say put a 80 buses directly on top of Whatcom Creek in the middle of a ecological crisis, that's going to piss me off. And I, I do feel like other people should be pissed off too. It's like, why aren't we addressing this? And yes, by the way, there are people involved. They have names. They are getting paid a lot of money to make these bad decisions. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do feel like we've kind of atomized the grassroots by losing a lot of those uh, journalism platforms, um, a lot of the nonprofits have kind of struggled to uh, to take up the reins. They've they've kind of been consumed by forming partnerships with local governments. Well, there's which... also been a lot of loss from nonprofits because the old style, like in the last three to five years, because of the way that journalism has shifted, but also because of all the lockdowns and all the changes and the economic distress that people are under. I mean, we haven't had a real conversation about the economic impacts of COVID on all the little tiny nonprofits, on all the local businesses, on all the 
on everything. I mean, basically, we've had an economic and social and emotional and psychological lockdown, and it's really affected us. Can you talk talk to us more about what that has to do with environmental damage and why you're involved in the Greenways Project? Yeah, uh, so I, I've stayed engaged with uh, local government. Um, I try and stay friendly with with elected leaders, which I think really irritates some of my friends. Uh, <laughs> that are, you know, perhaps even more extreme than I am. Um, I don't know. You have to keep your your toes in the pond if you're gonna if you're gonna make waves. And and so I uh, over the years have joined several committees and served in the voluntary position uh, with the Transportation Commission, Greenways. Um, most recently, I served five years as a neighborhood president here in Happy Valley. Um, and it's a, it's a great way to have a ground level view of what the issues are and see kind of the, the germplasm for some bad decisions. Like, oh, this could really you know, maybe maybe we're here in a, a room talking about this now, but in five years, what is this decision actually going to look like? Yeah, what's the ripple effect of a casual thought or a casual decision or somebody says, yeah, if you'll vote for that or I don't, then I'll, you know, I can support you. And these mm -hmm. little tiny, tiny, tiny decisions add up over time and and they ripple effect. They ripple out in, in little tiny you know, just little movements and suddenly something comes along from the side and hits it sideways and the whole thing spins off. It's very interesting. I, yeah. I know that you got pretty involved in that Whatcom Creek thing. What happened with, I mean, we're talking to a national audience. This is the same kind of thing that happens in any city anywhere. Really, when you talk about civics, politics, money, business and economy and ec ec ecology these days, but give us an example of what you've learned by being a activist that you would know if you're not? Uh, I think what I've learned is um, how to absorb bitterness and angst in a measured and non-destructive fashion. Like you, <laughs> you have to accept that you're gonna get your ass kicked a few times. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Joy, I, that whole thing with the bus barn on Whatcom Creek, mm -hmm. um, it just bummed me out to no end. To, yeah. to the entirety of our school district, you know, the, the school board and all of city council uh, in this city that, you know, claims mightily to be so eco-conscious and, oh, let's save the salmon and, oh, let's let's do the... Native American, you know, time immemorial chant and let's, you know, do all this hippie stuff that is so uh, just flagrantly performative. And then when they had an actual decision and an actual, you know, four acre site that they could have radically transformed. It's not like they were poor. It's not like they didn't have options. They own the property outright. And every one of these people just torpedoed it. They're just like, nope, you're crazy. We're not listening. 
thanks for your time. Uh, goodbye. And so they a, did. Do you have a sense of what, what, I mean, not to, not to go after anybody, but that happened even before the COVID crisis. So what happened that that happened? And what have you learned since that, that may have helped, may help to understand why people would do something like that? I mean, it's not, it isn't logical what happened. So how do you think that happens in a community? Well, I think the, uh, the power structure is you get a, a lot of bureaucratic inertia mm-hmm. and there's a phenomenon that's happening nationally where the administrative class, uh, you know, the, the actual bureaucrats that are making a hundred plus thousand dollars a year are far outstripping the, uh, working class you know the the best example is in school districts where you have these just bloated budgets for you know managers and uh you know all the the people that are directing these programs and and everything else those people are getting hired left and right and uh just creating this sclerotic rot of bureaucracy at the top level where they're all protecting themselves. Like they, yeah, it's almost like risk averse management as opposed to, you know, productive management going ahead. It's almost like the technology world and the litigation world and the risk management, the economic world started to become self-protective and then it built layers and layers and layers. And the more you try to self-protect, the more there is to cover up, which creates more risk and then more vulnerability, and then it compounds negative. Yeah, they just, they want to protect themselves. They want to make sure that their jobs are stable. They they don't want to get embarrassed by anything. So in the case with that, uh, that bus barn, decisions were made that the public wasn't aware of. Um, mm-hmm. And by the time it trickled up to the street level, People were like, no, this is this is a bad deal. Like the York Neighborhood Association had been fighting against the bus barn for over a decade. They tried to dock at it and and get the zoning changed and they'd worked really hard. And it just kind of popped up on their radar. I was I was the one that stumbled into it and brought it to them. Um and they're like, oh God, we gotta try and do something. But by that point, there's so many uh egos and reputations on the line, even though it was a small project, it, relatively speaking, is $2.8 million. But uh, there's just this inertia there where uh, even to revisit it or radically rethink these decisions was going to be uh, catastrophic for, for that kind of bureaucracy. They just, they were like, nope, this is how we do things. This is, this is going to happen. We drew it on a napkin five years ago, and nobody's going to roll back from it. So um, in other words, what in a way, almost what happens is somebody plants a seed, and then the policy monks go in and make all these different adjustments in policies and planning or this. And before it ever even comes to the public, there's already a railroad behind it that, yeah. that can't that's very difficult to try to stop, which is the same thing that we're running into on the jail issue. You know, yeah. they loaded yeah. up with bureaucratic stuff and they loaded up with, with 
white papers that maybe they're valid, maybe they're not. It doesn't mean a scientific white paper. I mean, just literally white paper. And that <laughs> white paper stacks up and it becomes like this thing that's an immovable object, sort of. Yeah. I think there's there's tie-ins there. Uh, we have a local uh, city council member who hates when I use this phrase, but uh, regulatory capture. Uh, that was the the terminology used for redlining districts, uh, you know, to keep people of color out of white neighborhoods. And uh, it was a specific thing where they had engineered the language and the zoning to assure that certain things would happen uh -huh. uh, and certain outcomes would would benefit them and protect them. And uh, I see that correlation a lot in these kind of decision-making processes where the ability for the public or an activist or a concerned neighbor to penetrate upward once once the, uh, you know, the napkin sketch is out there mm -hmm. or the idea is out there that they, they just don't roll backwards from it because they've got all these things where it's like, oh, well, this is the process. Mm -hmm. You know, we the process and I, you know, I'm sorry you missed the deadline for comments or, you know, I'm sorry that, that you didn't see the first drawing. And it's, it's really prolific in, uh, in development. You know, at the neighborhood level, we have a lot of uh, large projects that uh, are, you know, some of them are fine, but a lot of them are really shady where they're like, oh, we're it's not a critical area, critical uh, areas, you know, a, a mid-level wetland and we're allowed to fill it in and turn it into parking. And by the way, we're we're going to upzone this from 10 units to 20 and it's just like once those drawings are there, once they've already spent time talking with staff at the planning department and had a few meetings or whatever, it's so hard for <clears throat> a neighbor or a, a citizen to punch through that and say, hey, wait a minute, like there, there's many options here <clears throat> and you can still you know, choose option A, which is to do something sane and functional that will benefit the community. You don't have to stay committed to option B, C, or D uh, that are going to be less productive and less helpful. So what so you're actually saying to me is that it's almost like the white paper steamroller, the white paper becomes like like flour on a on a wet piece of paper, like a glue that sort of six, sticks it down and there isn't a process in our systems to be able to allow an interception to happen or a review process that isn't about rules and regulations, but actually is a common sense, there's no common sense corrective place to bring real problems to, to chew the fat and try to solve it. There really isn't that, is there? No, and I think your your observation about COVID uh, and how it kind of lobotomized a lot of grassroots dialogues is really accurate. You you see it um, 
you know, I don't, I don't think our current mayor is necessarily evil. I think he's, he's done some good things and uh, I do sympathize that he had to go through COVID and, and a lot of economic uh, trauma in this community, but there was a move and it was probably nationwide to uh, shift all these comment forums into little online questionnaires. Yeah, it, it, it's not actual community dialogue. It's like, let's move it over there. And as long as you park it, we can we can check off the box that says there were comments. Exactly. And it, where does that go? I mean, it just goes into the digital ether, you know, some data bank that maybe you're maybe you're, it is deleted or maybe it's held on to for a couple of years. But who the hell knows how many people are opposed to Project X or Y? Uh because you're just, you know, sending in a form on your computer or phone. And that's a that's radically different than the days that you and I remember where like with the coal terminal protests or or these, you know, big forums that we had over the uh, first couple of jail votes uh, or any any other topics where you'd have a room full of elected officials and a room full of citizens. And, you know, maybe there'd be maps or, or drawings or whatever, and you'd all sit there and you'd kind of thrash it out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't a, maybe it wasn't efficient from a bureaucratic point of view. And, uh, it, but it was democracy. It was a, a messy but necessary level of engagement where you could actually see things getting done and, uh, had faces and names that you could hold accountable. And that you could actually rub shoulders with. I mean, you could actually build relationship. This is part of place baking. Let's take a break right now and let's come back and let's talk about the value of place baking, place, place baking, of place making and the value of relationship development in community and why it's so essential that we have that when we're talking about things like economics and environment and diversity and the future of humanity itself. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Alex McLean, a friend of mine from Whatcom County, Washington. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. Welcome back to the call, Alex. It's delightful to have you here. You bring a whole different flavor of understanding the complexity of an average citizen. I mean, you're not average. I, I didn't mean it quite like that. But, you know, you're just a, a person who's interested in your community. You care about the community. You get involved in community. And you've seen the destruction of community over the past three to five years, actually over the past actually since about 2000 when the world changed quite a bit because of 9-11, because of social media, because of technology. Technology alone started to change so many sectors of our society that these things are all incremental but added up. Suddenly we're in a different reality, sort of like that book Future Shock talked about way back in the late 90s. There was a book that came out and it talked about Future Shock and what are we going to do when the world changes? 
And that's where we're at. So share some more about what that, what you're thinking about that. Mm. Yeah, the the world's changed pretty radically. Uh, I think with my environmental background, I besides the journalism work, I was I also got a minor in sustainable design and another minor in uh, environmental science. So I I don't know where that came from. Uh, you know, I I grew up in the the suburbs. My parents were Republicans. Uh, but we had a uh, one of the few parks in that town, uh, right right on the border of Redmond. There uh, was kind of my refuge, and I went out there as an introvert, uh, a stoner, <laughs> a butt rocker, back in the day, and just hung out with friends. And uh, I think that really informed my. Uh, my first observations about nature and uh, later I climbed a bunch of mountains and, and got more into it. Uh, but you see these changes happening in real time. Mm-hmm. Right? And some of them are really subtle. And I sympathize with people that are too busy or maybe they didn't have the interest or my uh, privileged education to notice these nuances yep. you know the difference between taking a hike in the early 80s around here and literally seeing so many frogs that you're worried you're going to step on them to you know jumping forward 40 years i haven't seen a frog in years you know what's interesting i haven't seen as many slugs it's like slugs used to be everywhere there we used to have two and three four inch slugs that would show up, you know, and I haven't seen a green slug and I never really thought about it until you just said that. Yeah. Well, the slugs have become snails and the snails are uh, an adaptation to a changing climate and they, they serve a totally different role in, in the ecosystem. I'm, I'm sure possums and, and other critters still gnash on them occasionally, but, you're right. I mean, the the slugs used to be an iconic species here in the Northwest. People had, you know, doorbell knockers and stickers, <laughs> and children's books written about slugs. And, you know, we got a little rain uh, today, finally, after a pretty horrific drought this summer. Uh, and, that, yeah, there's a couple of slugs out there. And people can say, oh, well, you know, it's not a problem. I saw one last week. But that's that's still uh, just a massive transformation at the ecosystem level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have phenomenon like that happening everywhere. Uh, the herring stock out at, uh, out at Cherry Point uh, crashed and magically went away. And I, I've talked to a couple of my friends that are in the fisheries and uh, we were talking about the drought and they're like, yeah, probably have to shut down the the fishing season like the the inflow uh streams of water is just not enough to support salmon mm-hmm. uh, and have a a commercial harvest so it's these knock on effects that you know as a drip 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 kind of torture effect maybe you don't notice it but 
cumulatively, mm-hmm. it'll knock you on your ass. Like it, that, there massive ramifications at the economic and ecosystem level that are uh, building up to uh, cause us some real chaos. It's really interesting because the other day I was, you know, I have people who have chosen to move out of the rain, rainy Northwest and they've chosen to move to Arizona. And I was reading an article about the fact that I think it was Arizona that had like 31 days of 110 degree and above weather or something. It was an astronomically crazy weather pattern. You know, it's like a whole movement. And she was talking, she, she was a beekeeper. And mm. she was talking about how all these beehives were melting down. And I mean, they were melting because of the heat and they would just simply slough off the beehive and squash the the, the queen and then there's no one there to rebuild. And so there's actually a lot of devastation that have, has happened to the bees because of the heat. And when you start looking, I was thinking about all the food supply problems. And I was thinking about the impact of food, fires, floods, um, lack of ability even for people to work. There were a lot of you know, immigrants that were put out of business and that were affected by you know, policy decisions and economic decisions and immigration decisions. And before long, you start adding these things up and there's layers and layers and layers of implication. And you know what I realized, Alex, is there's no one to have a conversation about that. There really isn't. I mean, when you look at what happened during the last, during the COVID crisis and the economic crisis that went with it, we had disasters which are handled by emergency management services. You've got um, shutdowns. So when you have a disaster, let's say an environmental or a weather disaster, what happens is the government steps in and people will go in and they'll do an emergency declaration. Well, as soon as there's an emergency declaration, then that changes the economic power and the balance of power and where the money's going to go. And then your executive branch sort of takes over that conversation. But then comes along to the social services and social services and businesses and small companies and small people. Who is going to do an emergency intervention for them? Large corporations have interventions and they, you know, they're in a position where they can they can file grievances or they can get to the corporate persons that are in charge of our government. But during the COVID crisis, the offices were shut down. I mean, you couldn't get past the phone call. And so it's like there's these these whole strata of our society where there's no one to do an intervention. And I think your conversation about this made me even more aware of the traumas. And maybe this is a time where we need to start having community reorganization conversations and community dialogue, civic dialogues to talk about these different interlocking and intersecting and colliding issues. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's starting to percolate up to uh, the awareness level for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might know more about it because of my education. You know, at Western, uh, they briefly talked about the social justice impacts of climate change. 
Uh, it's just the the data is unimpeachable. Uh, people of color, poor people, uh, both nationally and internationally, are bearing the brunt of the the impacts of climate change. Um, when when a neighborhood burns down in a forest fire, or when you know we're talking right now, and there's a uh, Category three hurricane that's about to uh, slam into Florida. Yeah, and you and I know how that's going to pan out. Uh, the rich people are going to get their insurance claims filed first. They're they're going to be taken care of one way or another, and the people that are less fortunate are going to probably suffer for years trying to put the pieces back together. Um, the people that run businesses or or our bosses somehow are, are going to uh, be better protected than the workers. And uh, this has been going on historically. We, we always know that uh, polluting industry will try and locate in uh, the poorest neighborhoods. They, they understand that they don't have political power and they don't have uh, the ability to to protect themselves the way wealthier or uh, whiter people do. And so it's been going on forever, but now that we're seeing these kind of, uh, this poly crisis is one of the terms that's out there. A, a what meta is that? Poly crisis? A poly crisis or a meta crisis where you just have, uh, you know, this repeated blunt force trauma of one disaster, one, one major shock after another. And each time it happens, it's harder and harder to recover. Uh, you know, we had a major catastrophic floods here a couple of years ago that uh, followed immediately after a absolutely freakish and terrifying heat wave where we were, you know, 15 to 20 degrees off of baseline. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really hard to, from where I'm sitting, you know, my house wasn't affected, but I know that there are people all over Whatcom County, whether it's, you know, the, the fisher, fisheries industry folks that were impacted by the heat wave or the people that got flooded out on the Nooksack. Uh, you know, there's still people that are trying to file claims and, and put the pieces back together and they are not. CEOs or, uh, you know, major landlord investors or hedge fund guys or whatever. They're, they're people like you and I who, uh, you know, are more tethered to whatever close-fitting economic <laughs> issues we might have day to day. Well, like, you know, what's, what's interesting is about that is that the number of people who don't know anything about filling out forms... They don't know anything about, you know, and we've got a lot of people with English as a second language. So oh, yeah. they don't even know the technical words to fill out the forms. And they just, they end up just raising their hands in frustration, walk away, don't even ask for help. So we end up with these, these ripple effects of imbalances that are not, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's all intentional. You know, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just that we've become dependent upon these technical systems that say, do this and do this and do this. And if you follow those boxes, 
then you're going to get to here. And there isn't any way to mitigate the problems in the middle of that. So that's created some bottlenecks here in the community that are causing us some serious challenges. So before we move on, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Alex McLean. Let's talk about when we do come back, let's talk about some of the biggest challenges you see coming down the road that you have enough wisdom to think about and say, what do we need to look at? Like there's these convergences that are coming that we need to look at in advance and say, what could we do? We've got a charter review process coming up in the next uh, year where we're talking about, you know, how does our bureaucracy work as different from the legislative branch and the judicial branch and the executive branch? You know, what are some of these political or systems problems that are coming down the road that we need to actually think about? Let's take a break and we'll be right back with Alex McLean. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. So welcome back to the call. I know that I left you with a little bit of a big question. So what do you have to say about any of this? Like, what do you see as some of the problems as a as a wiser person who's been around the block a little bit? What do you see coming down the road when we're talking about an economic crisis? We're talking about a social crisis. We're talking about food sovereignty issues. We're talking about immigration issues. We're talking about people not working and being shut out of the marketplace and disorientation and trauma. So I just, I just named a whole bunch of problems, but what does that add up to for you that you think would be really wise for us to be thinking about coming down the road? Mm. In a word, uh, what comes to mind is entropy. Entropy. Talk about that. Uh, all these things that you just, talked about uh, the product of a complex nonlinear system. Uh, our modern civilization has just gotten so freakishly overcomplicated and complex. Uh, you mentioned filling out forms. I mean, I have a, a massive allergy to uh, tax forms that are just so Byzantine and overly complicated I mean, there's there's probably 300 different tax forms that are out there. And even if you're just working one job, you don't know unless you hire someone, which rich people absolutely do. Uh, you don't know what kind of trouble you're getting yourself into or whether you owed money or or, you know, potentially signing yourself into a hole. Uh, and that's that's just epidemic everywhere. We're we're trying to solve problems with greater complexity, more technology, uh, more bureaucracy. I already mentioned the the phenomenon of hiring all these administrative staffers that are just kind of uh, stacked on top of each other in these layers of uh, mostly useless jobs that that they've somehow decided are absolutely essential to, to running programs and to delivering services to people. And so it's, it's a natural thing. 
entropy is uh, a natural process. It's it's the same phenomenon where if you have an ecosystem that gets too complex or uh, a species that starts to overshoot its biophysical boundaries, uh, then it starts to cannibalize itself and it enters a, a kind of frenetic phase of chaos that, that uh, can have moments of productivity and brilliance you know, we we might have some miracle battery, for example, that might show up because everybody's so freaked out about, you know, trying to to get off of fossil fuels or whatever. But by and large, the uh, trajectory of complexity and entropy is towards less complexity, which terrifies a lot of people because what you're talking about there is uh, less stuff, less money, less decadence, less cell phones and boats and toys and everything else. Uh, the the stair-step process of collapse is degrowth. And that is a really uncomfortable wor word <laughs> in uh, our rapidly capitalistic pro-growth uh, society, and that's that's not to uh, to chew on, I know, but it's just uh, we're entering entering some terminal phases here. Like this hurricane in Florida is probably going to lobotomize the insurance industry for good in that state. There have already been massive bankruptcies from the previous hurricanes, and there are people in that state now that cannot get insurance for their main asset, like their their whole nest egg is tied up in their house and their property and they cannot get insurance. And you know, so keep going. Well, I mean, just overnight, you can see the ramifications of that. Their asset essentially becomes worthless because they can't sell it. Like you, you can't buy something that is not uh, covered by some risk insurance. You know, it's and, interesting. I had a friend of mine from Germany here a, a while ago. Uh, in September, we did a regeneration conference and invited people to come talk about some of these big issues that we have with the homelessness, the poverty, the income inequality, the cost of living, et cetera. And she's from the reinsurance industry. I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> but yeah. reinsurers are the insurance companies who have gone together to say, if I'm, you know, there's only so many insurance providers in the in the world and these guys have decided to team up to double cover themselves in the event of some catastrophic losses if the same company gets hit in two or three countries with two or three disasters it can create a, a catastrophic event for the insurance company but she was talking about how these insurance companies are entangled and how the economics, like, I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase homo economicus. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Well, sure. The, the species completely orbits around money and, and capitalism and the whole. The whole yeah. economic system is based on this character, which is literally a stick figure. Yeah. In the economic world 
and they measure everything according to this stick figure. And he has no conscience. He's a consumer. And that's the model upon which all of our economic models are, are, are based on, which is just, it's insane. When she said that, I laughed out loud. And I, I've been laughing forever, but it's not funny. Because when you really look at what happened to derivatives and when you look at what happened to the stock market and the the crash in 2008, it was because these numbers on a computer turn into money on a computer, which then are multiplied and they and they multiply and multiply and multiply. And eventually you have a, a, a glut in a system and they call them bubbles and they use all these fancy words and the common person has no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. But, but right now I've read where the guy who predicted the 2008 stock market crash, he pulled like 85 or 95% of his money or something. He did um, contrary investing because he said the market's going to crash. And so Warren Buffett pulled a lot of his money from a certain area and moved it over to another place. And when you start having major investors who are moving monies like that, that means we've got a major economic catastrophe heading this way and buying more jail taxes and pretending that we can continue to gentrify everything and build upon this false economic system, we are headed for a pretty significant correction, as you would say, or maybe you wouldn't, but maybe you would use that term, terminalize, <laughs> terminalize the systems. Yeah, correction is is a good term. It, uh, it's what happens when you uh, are falling down and try and catch yourself midway, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's uh, the, there's all sorts of different metaphors that are out there, and uh, you know, Homo econom. How did you no, say it? Homo economicus. It was. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, podcasters and social commentators right now is Nate Hagens, and he uh, has a uh, website called The Great Simplification, ah. uh, which uh, focuses heavily on on these topics, and he calls uh, humans and our civilizations a super organism. Uh -huh. Like you said, you have these uh, just freakishly overextended layers of, you know, insurance refinancers or, you know, AI doing yeah. trades. You, you don't want a robot doing multi-billion dollar trades on Wall Street. That's just a recipe for for absolute anarchy. And all these hedge funds that are doing God knows what, and they're, uh, they're just percolating along in, in the stratosphere. They're so far above the comprehension of you or, you or I or 95% of the rest of uh, citizens who are just trying to get through their commute every day. And uh, yeah, there, there just seems like there's a lot of vectors out there right now that are really troubling. So and I think, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, unfortunately, uh, when people are stressed out and anxious, 
uh, one of the typical reaction is a lunge towards fascism, uh, an instinct to, you know, build more jails or we need more cops. I, I'm really stressed out. And, you know, I, I heard there was a robbery down the street or my friend's car got broken into. So, you know, in normal times when everything's going well and, and you see a, a clean horizon, maybe that's not the instinct, but nowadays with, with everything that's going on, there's uh, a lot of people that are flipped out and it's, it's changed our politics. It's well, and you know, what's interesting is about that is that the, the social media and the media mongering that the, the storytelling about the, all of these things is something that was fascinating to me in Whatcom County, our prosecutor or, or our, not our prosecutor so much as our, our sheriff, our mayor, our executive, they all started to hire social media managers and publicists and public relations people when as soon as COVID crisis hit, mm -hmm. they spent an enormous amount of taxpayer dollars just to spin the stories so that they could stay safe while the public was dealing with all this stuff. And I think this is one of the issues that we're going to have to start dealing with as human beings. It's It seems like being able to do civic cafes like where where we come together and we actually start re-talking about how the impact of this last few years is affecting our lives like i was talking to a mother at a at a convention i was at this last weekend and she was talking about the fact that her daughter as a young teenager now is basically sort of a shut-in you know, the impact of not being able to socialize and go out and do things has affected the way she's thinking. So let's um, engage this conversation a little bit more, Alex, and let's think about what it would take to start a movement for simplification, for minimalization, for um, how to remove before you can pass one more law, you have to remove four. You know, because really that's what we do is we say, well, we need, that's a problem. So let's pass a law. And then we get in this habit of passing a law. You think that fixes the problem. Well, it actually doesn't. It makes the problem worse because you don't, you don't correct whatever was wrong in the first place. So going backwards might be a really useful thing. So you have a couple minutes left here. What are What's the good news that you see? Do you see good news anywhere on the horizon? And and where do you look for inspiration or help in thinking about how to actually solve these problems of the future? Yeah, I found, uh, I would hesitate to use the word hope, right. uh, but I found some solace in uh, going down a really deep rabbit hole through COVID. Um, wow. And you're you're right. I mean that I really feel for the younger generation because they they got so screwed, uh, you know, just at the peak of their activity and creativity and socializing uh, to just be forced inside and plugged into their cell phones or games or whatever. Uh, that's going to have knock on trauma and and educational effects for a long time. Um, but, you know, I, I was able to do construction projects, uh, but I went down this deep rabbit hole about um, 
ecological overshoot and uh, collapse, uh, things that are just really morbid. Like they, there's no easy way to say that we are not going to stay at 1.5 degrees. Like we are, we're already blowing past that in, uh, here in 2023 and next year is going to be worse because we've got the uh, El Nino effect coming. That's, that's just starting to ramp up now. Uh, and so what do you do with that information? What do you do when you kind of acknowledge that the, these grand government institutions like the IPCC or, or even local programs with like, oh, we're going to start a climate action fund and that's going to, you know, we're going to buy solar panels. Uh, what I found uh, and through that rabbit hole and through looking at a lot of uh, websites, one of them is called Just Collapse, which is uh, a metaphor for justice and degrowth at the same time like if you simplify your life you can see things a lot clearer uh, you you're not obligated to get sucked into their uh you know layers of complexity and stress and their their freak out is their freak out you can you can design your own way forward uh through just keeping things simpler and dumber, you know? You can actually reduce cost, reduce complexity, reduce com consumption, and improve your quality of life by focusing on simpler solutions. Yeah. And I, I was really blessed because I, uh, I didn't see it at first. I'm not a terribly social person, but I got roped into that uh, role as a neighborhood president. And so through COVID, I was still connected uh, on a social and community level, and I still had things to do. I still had uh, meetings and and things to figure out and problems to solve. Mm -hmm. And I, um, what that taught me was, you know, at the neighborhood level, uh, literally with your neighbors. You know, if you don't know who you live next to, go ahead and and figure that out and start talking. Mm -hmm. That's the uh, that's the structure that kind of got atomized with technology and and everything else that's happening nowadays. Is people have gotten disconnected and they aren't engaged with things the way they they might have been. But and that so, is the solution for the future. Is is part of what you're saying? Yeah, and you know, as as an environmentalist, as someone who's uh, really flipped out about environmental issues i just plant trees legally or illegally and i get in really titanic fights with uh, our public works department because i i figured out that they control literally thousands of publicly accessible parcels they're they're easements they're small easements like right-of-way sure. that you and i you and i might not even notice because they're filled with blackberries and garbage and illegal fences and everything else. But it's like, wait a minute, why? I mean, I, I adore the Greenways program and I think we designed a, a really excellent levy this time around. It's uh, climate change issues are baked in there as well as uh, equity issues, you know, making sure it's distributed 
uh, to every neighborhood where we get some resources and, and uh, amenities for people like my neighborhood, which is one of the poorest and most densely populated in Bellingham, we damn well better get some good stuff, you know, because mm -hmm. poor people need that respite too. Uh, we know it reduces crime. We know it reduces suicide, drug use, everything else when people have the ability to connect and uh, engage with nature like that. So, so yeah, I do small local projects. I've, I've been able to bludgeon public works into uh, getting a few parcels here that are going to be very small, but, you know, placemaking opportunities where you can have a bench and a couple of trees and clean up a place in your neighborhood. Uh, it's been really rewarding. And I think uh, it's the path forward. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. You, those last ideas there, we should have probably started on those a little earlier in the conversation, but maybe we can come back at another time and and hear some more of those kinds of ideas because placemaking, building relationships, talking to each other, figuring out how we can cons conserve, can conserve and preserve and use our resources differently we can make a change in the future. So thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. Yep. And we'll be able to make that change a lot quicker if we don't spend $110 million on a jail. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, are you correct about that? Thank you so much. We'll we'll uh, resume these conversations about the business of justice on our next podcast. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.